from Grand Haven and soon to be Tacoma, and we're very happy that they're back. It's a wonderful thing. I especially want to thank Judson, Judd, we call him Judd, right? Either one works. And Jamili, I think it was nostalgic for them. It's new for me, but for most of you, I think it was really special to have them playing the piano and the guitar and leading worship, do a beautiful job. So, um, Matthew chapter 2, we've been preaching through Mark, and each Sunday I accidentally say Matthew. So finally we're in Matthew for one Sunday, Matthew chapter 2, to celebrate this Christmas Eve. Um, let me ask you a question to start with. Do you find it easier to give gifts or to receive them? Think about it for a second. Some people are very good at receiving gifts. I think most small children are very good at receiving them with delight. Um, and a few of us are very good at giving them. If you're very good at giving them, it's probably, um, it's probably expensive, but worth it to you. My wife, it's her love language, is to give gifts. I have a difficult time receiving them. I don't know about you. My kids know I'm the hardest person to buy a gift for, and um, I have a hard time. I remember... A cousin of mine, as a kid, he received a Bible for Christmas, and he wanted this favorite toy, and he threw the Bible across the room in anger that he got a Bible. That's the worst I've ever seen anybody receive a gift. Our tradition of giving gifts comes probably from Matthew chapter 2, how the Magi gave these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to this baby and his family here in Bethlehem. We sing a few songs about that. We Three Kings. You know the one, right? Also, Little, little Drummer Boy. Maybe the uh, theologically worst Christmas song about, of all time. But that's why we didn't sing it this morning. Um, but we put up manger scenes. We have one over here of, the, of wise men, of the, the magi. Three of them, there's always three of them because they brought three gifts, but we don't know how many there were. So we have the Magi, we have the manger scene. So what we often do not have represented is what happened around that night. When the Magi left, being warned by the angel to flee and not go back and tell King Herod what had happened. That same night, an angel told Joseph to flee to Egypt and take Jesus and his mother and leave the country because there was a massacre on the way. Soon thereafter, maybe within a day or two, it was only five miles from Jerusalem where Herod the king had his palace. A decree was made to kill all babies two years old and under. Now we don't picture that very often in our major scenes or in our front yards or in our churches. But that is a reality of when Jesus was born. Um, a few things about receiving this. The, the, we, we give gifts to remember the Magi and the gifts that they gave and to create joy, right? Because it brings great joy to give gifts. It's a fine thing. It's a good thing to do to give gifts. The real gift, and we've heard this many times, is that God gave himself to us on Christmas. He, gave, he came to us in the person of Christ. But why is that hard to receive? 
The big question is not what we give, but how we receive the gift of Christ. I want to look in verse 15 and focus on this. We, each Sunday we are talking about Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Christ. And here in verse 15 it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. What does it mean this was to fulfill that prophecy? The massacre of these babies in Bethlehem, of these small boys, of these toddlers, was to fulfill what prophet Hosea had said 700 years previously. You know what makes it difficult? There's a couple things in this passage that make it difficult to receive this gift. First of all, there's an existential problem. How is it that a sovereign God visited Jerusalem in this baby, or Bethlehem, I'm sorry, in this baby, and escaped, while historians say somewhere between a dozen to three dozen toddlers and babies were killed because he was there? You'll remember um, that Mary. Uh, or was it Martha, I think, was telling Jesus when her brother died, if you had been here, he would not have died. I imagine these mothers might have said, if you had not have been here, my son would still be alive. So how do we reconcile a sovereign God who would come into human history in Bethlehem and be what appears the cause of the death of Dozens of toddlers. This is a real problem. I experienced this problem, this existential problem one time in Morocco when a young man that I had discipled and had a part in leading to Christ and he was sharing Christ with me and as a result of that he was arrested, taken to jail. I was afraid he was going to go to prison for years because of it and I thought, have I done a good thing by coming to this country and this young man, who previously knew no problems with the police, is now arrested, being put on trial, facing potentially years in prison because of the message that I shared with him. I read yesterday in the news about a pastor in a church in Bethlehem of Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church, it's called. Or it's one of the churches of the Nativity in, in, in Bethlehem. His name is Reverend Munthier Isaac, and they have canceled all Christmas celebrations in Bethlehem this year because of the war in Palestine and between Israel and, and Hamas. And um, they've created, maybe you've seen it, it's become pretty well, I think, viewed. They've created a, a, a scene of rubble and put the baby Jesus statue inside of that rubble, and they've canceled all Christmas services. And his question is a good one. He says, how can we sing joy to the world today? And I think that's a great question to answer from this passage. How can we sing joy to the world today? Maybe you're not going through war or um, living in rubble and wondering if you'll survive today. But many people, I think, during this time of year experience depression um, I read that 7% of people experience decreased stress during the holidays. 
meaning that 93% experience either the same stress or more stress because of the holidays. Um, maybe there's things of uh, feelings of bitterness, loss, and anger in the world that we live in. So how can we sing joy to the world in the middle of all of these things? A second problem we have is more of an intellectual or an interpretational problem. Um, in this verse 15, Matthew said that it was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. But this phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, wasn't a prophecy. It was a historic, in the time, it was a historical fact that Israel was that son of God that we called out of Egypt. So our Jewish and Muslim friends will challenge this verse and say, this is not a prophecy. It doesn't apply to Jesus. The Bible is incorrect here. So how do we sing joy to the world with these moral, you call them um, existential problems, and also these interpretational or intellectual problems? My proposition to you today is that this short phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, contains the answer to the question, how can we sing joy to the world? And I hope for you today that you will experience, I hope you've experienced a worshipful season that you, that you love Jesus and believe in him, but I don't want to take for granted that you have. Many of you maybe, some of you maybe are not a believer in Jesus at all, and maybe you are a believer, but you've had a very hard time really worshiping, really enjoying Christ, really feeling that joy during this season. So the title is going to be How to Receive God's Sufficient Gift. And a longer phrase, no, you can go to the next one for me, is the first, there's going to be three points, and I'll just tell you a longer phrase, is that for our suffering, failure, and longings, Christmas announces our eternal redemption, our ultimate righteousness, and our permanent fulfillment. So the first one comes from out of Egypt. So out of Egypt I called my son. This represents that for our suffering, he is our eternal redemption. I'll tell you why. When the Bible mentions Egypt in connection with coming out of it for the people of Israel, it brings up two things in the mind of every Jewish person. And the first one is slavery or suffering or oppression. This is the Egypt part. That's what they experienced in Egypt. They were slaves for years. They experienced lack and loss. They were foreigners in a foreign land. They experienced humiliation and physical beatings. Um, Jesus then, sovereignly, that God had him, the Father had him go to Egypt and come out, is that Jesus is coming out of Egypt representing this, that Christ came to identify with our sufferings. That God and Christ experienced what we experience in Egypt. The suffering of childbirth, escaping a massacre. He lived as a refugee. He lived in the flesh. He was a friend of sinners. And he was beaten, mocked, whipped, and ultimately crucified. So when we say that he came out of Egypt, Christ came into Bethlehem not to be a bystander, but he came to share in the suffering and in the oppression. Not only that those babies and, and toddlers in Bethlehem experienced, but also you and me. 
The, fact, the second thing that out of Egypt brings to mind is redemption. Moses was the prophet chosen by God to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. It was a wonderful celebration. It was a joyous time. In Exodus chapter 19, you can read the story. But what happened is that, as we see in Hosea 11, the same passage that this quote comes from, you go to the next one, the people of Israel had left God and had stopped following and loving the Lord and had worshipped the gods around them. And God said to them, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. Matt and I were discussing this yesterday, talking about oppression, what's going on in the Middle East um, between Jewish people and Palestinian people. One group is oppressed, turns around and oppresses another group. As soon as that one is oppressed and get on top, they do the same. And it's a cycle of oppression. And you can free one people from oppression only to find that they become the oppressor. And this is the human cycle of things, right? We are victimized and then we victimize others. And we can free someone from oppression only to find that they have inside of them the spirit of the oppressor. And so Jesus, when he came, brought, when it says he came out of Egypt, he was coming to lead a redemption that was greater than Moses's because the freedom that Moses led his people to was temporal. They ended up being under the foot of the Assyrians years later. And so all sort of effort to find freedom and redemption in this world is going to only be temporal. It's going to not be the eternal redemption. But Jesus, when he came out of Egypt, he came to bring that eternal redemption. So for our sufferings, Christmas announces an eternal redemption. I remember I mentioned that Jesus had that conversation with Martha where she said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus responded to her and he said, your brother will live again. And she said, yeah, I know, in the, in the future, in the by and by, somewhere in the clouds. And I think that's what people kind of consider Christ and this promise of redemption. It's just some story that people use to make themselves feel better about sometime in the future. And Jesus told her this in John chapter 11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is to say that God is not indifferent to the sufferings of these toddlers in Bethlehem, nor to your suffering. He enters it with the purpose to lead them it. To illustrate that, I was texting with a friend of mine this week, and he asked me to pray for a friend, a mutual friend of ours, and I asked him, can I help with anything? And he said this, he said, it's frustrating because this is something I don't think any of us can help with besides prayer. He needs to figure out himself spiritually and hopefully can find someone who can relate to his current struggle. I didn't tell him to say that. But he said, and I'm hoping that will happen at some point. This is, we have this human understanding that we need help from people who have experienced what we've experienced. Right? 
And if you've ever really been helped by a friend, you've probably been helped by a friend who understood what you're going through, who traveled that road before you and can bring you hope and can bring you encouragement and can bring you help. So when Jesus came as a baby into Bethlehem, born among toddlers who would soon be dead from no sin of their own, he didn't come as a bystander, but he came to experience that same injustice taken upon himself. So the way we can rejoice today, and we can, we can say, I would say to Reverend Lothar Isaac, that we can say joy to the world is because the Savior came to experience the pain of war, and the pain of the refugee, and the pain of the sufferer. And he came to, to share it with us. So what are you going through? Jesus can relate. We're about to send our sister Cindy to Togo here in a few weeks. It's going to be a very bittersweet moment for us, and um, we're going to miss her very much. But what we're sending her to work in the Hospital of Hope in northern Togo, as the Lord is leading her back there where she served for 20 years, we care very much about the suffering of the people of Togo. Christians care very much about the temporal suffering. But they know that without the eternal hope of Jesus, all we can do is temporarily relieve suffering. And so the salvation or the conversion of one soul to Christ is worth more than the freedom of all peoples of all time that will, that will eventually end, that is temporal. The second thing, that we, the reason that we can rejoice and that we can receive is that for our failure... Christ is our permanent righteousness. So I want to explain that. Now, if you go to the next slide. So out of Egypt, I called. So God calling him out of Egypt. This word call is the word ekalesa in Greek that it used there. Same word we get the word church from, a called out group of people. In Hosea, the prophet used the word kara, which means to summon or to point. So the people of Israel, when they were called out of Egypt, and no, you can go to the next slide, it says in Exodus 19, 3 and 5, if you look down, it says, while Moses went up to God, so this is on Mount Sinai, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and look at this here, Keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. This word to call out leads people inevitably to the covenant. The calling of a people is the calling into covenant with God, meaning that he himself initiates the covenant with his people. And so when the people of Israel were called out to the covenant that God established in the law of Moses, the nation of Israel was called to reflect his glory and goodness to the world. Well, that didn't go very well. So, now if you go to the next slide, and Hosea right after the initial prophecy, it says that the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with words of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them, he says, as one who eases the yoke of their jaws and bent down to them and feed them. 
So when the nation failed and everyone did what was right in their own eyes during the time of the judges, it became apparent that they were not obeying and keeping this covenant. So they were called out of Egypt to, to be the salvation of the nations, but they didn't live up to that. So they thought if we only had a king, he would lead us to follow God. Well, a few of them did okay. You have David, you have Josiah, but most of the kings of Judah, all of the kings of Israel, absolutely failed in the calling that God gave them. The cherry on top of all of that was King Herod, who was a convert Jew from another nearby tribe. So he was a Jewish person observing the some of the some of the fasts and feasts of the Jews. And he was one of the most wicked and evil and murderous people in history. In fact, we know more about King Herod than we do any of the ancient kings of Rome. More than Julius Caesar, more than any of the kings of uh, Babylon or even of the empire that came after him. And what, and what we know about Herod, Herod did not welcome challenges to his kingdom. He actually killed three of his sons, three of his own children, and one of his wife. They say it was his favorite, and he killed her because of his fear that they wanted to take over his kingdom. He built great things. He did amazing things. That's why they call him Herod the Great. He built seven fortresses. One of them is Masada in south, south of Israel. He built cities, and he built more than any king um, since Solomon had built in Israel. The murder of these babies didn't even make it into the book that Josephus wrote about the life of Herod. He wrote two volumes. The murder of these children in Bethlehem didn't even make it into the book, most likely because it was only somewhere between a dozen and three dozen children. And for Herod, that was just, a, that was just another day. And so when we read this story, we see that Israel and all of their kings have failed in this calling. And we put ourselves, I don't know where you put yourself in this, in this story. Often we try to put ourselves in a story. I'd like you to put, I'd like you to imagine yourself today for a second in the position of Herod. It's a difficult thing for us to imagine, right? But in truth, we are little underachieving Herods. Now what I mean is that when Jesus came, do we welcome his coming and say, Lord, now you control my life. And you tell me what to do in every area, I will completely submit to you. The truth is that from a child, we learned that we are in charge of our lives and nobody should tell me what to do. So when our Jesus came into Bethlehem, we had a very similar reaction to Aaron and we didn't kill infants and toddlers, I really hope that none of you did that. But we have a similar resistance to Herod. We're underachieving Herods. We don't, we're not Aaron the Great or, you know, Whoever you are, the great, because we just don't quite achieve as much as Herod, but we have the same sort of rebellion when God tries to tell us that He's the King of our lives and He's our Creator and He made us. And you might think, well, I think you're being a bit harsh about that. But the truth is that all of our sin and all of our rebellion against God hurts people. There is not a single, there's no such thing as a victimless sin. All of our rebellion against God affects a thousand brothers and sisters who we don't even know. The jealousy of Cain is the murder of Abel. The lust of David is the death of Uriah. The foolishness of a son, Proverbs says, is the heaviness 
to his mother. So every sin that we commit is a sin both against God and against innocent people around us. So you might say, but I think most of us are kind of Jesus followers in this room, so maybe you're being you know, a little bit hard about that. But the reality is, for those of us who have received Christ as Savior, it's still a daily struggle to submit to His King, isn't it? How many times have you, for example, said, Lord, I submit to you and I, I will not do this thing again. Next day, what, do we, what happens? Um, we do it again. So we're so forgetful and we're also inherently rebellious. So here's the good news about that, though. If you go with me to the next slide, is that how did God respond to the rebellion of his own people? He said, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Speaking of Israel, how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burden anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst, and I will not come in wrath. The way that we can, the reason we can say joy to the world and receive this gift is that though every human born of Adam is rebellious, he has not come to us in wrath. He came to us the first time in Jesus in love. He came to us to give himself. When we fully deserve wrath, He came and gave us mercy. Jesus was called out of Bethlehem, or out of Egypt, sorry, and received the same commission to obey the Father, yet because of wicked man, that baby in a manger would grow up to be the object of God's wrath. On his shoulders, he took God's wrath for my sin and yours. So think of that. That baby who you could say, humanly speaking, was the circumstantial cause of the death of all those infants, was going to be the object of wrath that would take upon himself the sins and the consequences of every potential sin that that baby who died or those toddlers would have committed because he took upon himself the sins of the whole world. Without that baby, Jesus, growing up and living a perfect life in their place, those children would have only known failure like you and I have and condemnation like their fathers before them. So the reason to rejoice today is that in our failures, in Jesus, God offers permanent righteousness. Not a righteousness we can lose when we fail Him tomorrow. Not a righteousness we can lose because of what we've done in our past. So here's the question. Maybe you're a high achiever. Maybe you're a low achiever. Maybe you're a high achiever trying to hide the fact that you're a low achiever. Maybe you're hypersensitive to criticism and you've been hurt by someone. Maybe you've hurt someone. And you're having a hard time rejoicing and feeling the joy of Christmas because of these feelings of failure in yourself. If you're like me, that's the truth. So here's the joy to the world, is that because of Jesus, because of Bethlehem, we can say, he responds to me, not with wrath, but his heart is compassionate and warm and tender toward me. That means that my wife and I, when we have a conflict, 
Because of Jesus, my heart can be warm and tender toward hers and hers toward me because he lives within us. And so in your failures, no matter what you've done in your past, and no matter the weakness you feel about your ability to do well in the future, completely receiving the joy of Christmas, receiving the gift of Jesus, is to receive his righteousness on your behalf. And that's really good news, even in Bethlehem, even today. Lastly, and we'll be finished, is um, for our longings, Christ is our ultimate fulfillment. So this comes from the phrase that out of Egypt I have called, and know if you go to the next one, my son. My son is um, the word in Hebrew, ben, it's the same word in Arabic. And it's a word of relationship and mission. So what does it mean to be a son? To be a son means to represent the family. To be a son means to be in the image of the father. To be a son means to have the work and the responsibility of the family and of the father. And it means to be an extension of that family and that place. For example, Jamili left for Holland a few years ago and married a Dutch guy. Right? And now the Swifts have an interest in Holland that they never had before, I imagine. They go and visit Holland, and they sent their best, one of the five best, to Holland. And when it says, out of Egypt I called my son, it's speaking of God's own self and his representative sent on his mission in his image to do his work. God called the nation of Israel my son. When he said, uh, when God sent Moses to Pharaoh, he said, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. Eventually, because of a lot of pressure, Pharaoh let Israel go, and Israel did not serve him. So when Jesus was called out of Israel, out of Egypt as a child, he was the son of God who would please the father. And in his baptism, the father said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And in everything, he obeyed the Father until even to the point of death. So Jesus came to restore a people to God in that role as son. My favorite verse, and the verse that brought me to Christ, was John chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God. So through the Son of God, God brought many sons to himself. Without Jesus, the role of son would have been left empty. So this answers our question from our friends that would criticize this interpretation by Matthew that this happened to fulfill what was written in the prophets. How does it fulfill what was written in the prophets? Without Jesus coming, the role of son that God had chosen Israel to, to play because they had not followed him would have been left empty. Griffith Thomas is an Anglican pastor, and he said this. I put this here because I think it's such a helpful quote. If you scribble fast, you can scribble it. If not, I can send it later. He says this about Jesus in the New Testament. He says, The Old Testament is a book of unfulfilled prophecies, unexplained ceremonies, and unsatisfied longings, all of which are resolved in the New Testament's focus on Jesus Christ, who fulfills in his life the prophecies who explains in his death the ceremonies, and who satisfies in his resurrection the longings. What does he mean by that? He means that without Christ, the Old Testament is just a side street that leads nowhere and somehow stops and we don't know why we got here or where we're going. 
But without the New Testament, or the Old Testament, then the New Testament in Christ leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions and with a lot of lack of surety to know if what he's saying in the New Testament is true. That's why it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Next year, we're going to challenge everybody in this church to read the Word of God that they've never, and some of you have not read the whole Bible. Some of you have, and we want to get in the Word of God together as a church. Because it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And when Christ came fulfilling what Hosea said, he didn't fulfill it only because Hosea said, and this is going to be fulfilled in the Messiah. He filled it because the words of Hosea in chapter 11 left questions unanswered. And it left plans unaccomplished. And it especially left longings unfulfilled. Some psychologists say that we as humans have six or seven different existential longings that are never fulfilled around us. And gives a list. Justice. When we see injustice, we are so filled with emotion about that, but we never see that feeling desire for justice met. We have a, a longing for rest, for home, for peace, for safety, and for significance, all of which those longings of the human heart are not met by the old covenant, are not met by the things we try to meet it in around us. They're only met in the son that was called out of Egypt. I'll give you an example, um, a baseball example. So I woke up this morning thinking of this example. So I hopefully, hopefully it'll be helpful. It's like Noah hit, let's say, a single. And he's on first base. And then King David and Solomon, they did pretty solidly. They, they're on second base together, but they made quite a few errors. They didn't get all the way home. And um, Moses and Joseph and the prophets that died as martyrs, we could say they did the best, and they made it all the way to third. And you have these bases full of everything that happened in the New Testament, and none of them made it. But they're all standing on the bases, and it's all this potential unaccomplished yet. So I don't know if you're a baseball fan. I haven't played since high school, but... You know if you watch baseball, when the bases are loaded and it's the bottom of the ninth and your team is down by two or let's say three, that there's an anticipation that's happening, right? Especially when your best batter comes up to bat. And he could, this is very helpful for you, Leonard. I apologize, but you... Okay. So you, you feel this anticipation when this is happening and the whole stadium is full of electricity because something might just happen. So while the birth of Jesus did not immediately stop the unjust death of those toddlers, while the birth of Jesus did not stop immediately in God's plan all injustice at that moment, he, the Christmas was like Jesus stepping into the plate. It's like he walked out onto the scene. And all of the prophets and all of the longings of all of history before him were standing there on the bases None of them able to arrive at home. None of them able to accomplish what was there for them to accomplish. And Jesus is standing at that. So, his death and resurrection was the home run. It was that thing that sealed it for us. And they all made it home, 
And now, where we're at right now is in the already and not yet, where Jesus is rounding the bases, and we're waiting for him to come home. That may be the most extended baseball illustration I've ever given. <laughs> Jillian knows that might be the first baseball illustration she's ever heard. <laughs> so, this is how Jesus meets the longings. What's the song that we sing? That a little town of Bethlehem, I still we see the light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So how do you receive then this baby with joy, with all of the injustices, all of our own failures, and all of our not yet met longings that we experience in life? I would say it like this, like Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer wrote when he, said, when he wrote Rock of Ages, Flesh for Me is that we come to him not thinking like a little drummer boy, which is why it's such bad theology, who can do what he can for Jesus and play his drums, and then Jesus smiles at him, and he's done something for Jesus. We come with him, to him with empty hands. And we say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I pray. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Bow I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. The only way to receive joy to the world that the angels proclaimed in Bethlehem, knowing that those toddlers would be unjustly killed. They, did, they were not ignorant of that or any of the other injustices that would happen. The only way to receive it in your heart today is to come to Jesus in that way. I have nothing to bring you. No good can I offer you. I come saying you are the ultimate fulfillment of all my longings. You are the permanent righteousness that I need and can't accomplish on my own. And you, Jesus, are not because of, at the beginning, as you said, not because of what I have done, but because what you have done for me. I come with empty hands. So though today you may experience longings that leave you unfulfilled, and you may experience pain and about your past and failures that you experience without knowing where to find righteousness, and you're experiencing some suffering to know that He is the Redeemer who can lead you out of it. So I want to pray today in the same words of that hymn writer. Father, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to your cross we cling. Naked we come to you for dress. And we are waiting, we are expecting and thanking you that you've dressed us in your righteousness. We thank you that in Christmas we can find forgiveness not only for ourselves, but also for all of those around us. And we pray that as we continue and finish with worship for you today, of you today, that you would be central in our hearts as we enjoy the joy to the world that came in the person of Jesus. And we actually ask you, as you're rounding the bases and headed for home again, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world is still broken. I'm still broken, and we're waiting for your return. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Thank you.